So, um, the question was asked to me, actually, as I was walking out of our discipleship class this morning, um, Jeff, you just recently did All Saints Day and talked about death and resurrection. And then today you're talking about the doctrine of the afterlife. What's going on? The only thing I could think of is there's a little discrimination going on in the office. It has to do with age. Maybe because I'm closer than everybody else. I don't know. Maybe they think it's on my mind. But this morning we are coming to a conclusion of the heretic series that Pastor Chris started on on the beliefs that are are out there in the church that maybe um, have led to some some misunderstanding and and misteaching. And today we are going to be talking about, I hope I can get this thing to go correct. Yep. Heaven and the afterlife. Heaven and the afterlife. Now, there's not really, when I looked into this, I thought a lot about, um, like, what is this doctrine actually called? And in most most church traditions, they use words like um, a doctrine of the last things or a doctrine of of resurrection and hope. Um, But part of what I want to talk to you a little bit today about is also, what does the church mean whenever we say the word heaven? But I thought it would be important for me to kind of personalize this and share a little bit. I, I need to tell you as a little disclaimer, I'm a little out of my comfort zone today. I'm using slides. That's just not me. And I'm, this is more teachy than preachy, I think, though it could happen at the end. So I'm just warning you right now. So, <clears throat> But uh, I, I, I thought to kind of connect this for, so that you kind of know where I'm coming from, I would share a little bit about my story. Um, Becca, there's a slide that didn't come up. I'm going to flip through it till I find. There is a slide missing. It's the camp meeting slide. Becca's going to take care of that for me. (laughs) So here it comes. Heretic. Yes, I know I'm a heretic. That's fine. I got that. So... Well, anyway, while she's doing that, it, it, it's a, it, it, the, the story is this. I, I, I don't know. I'm going to guess that I was probably about 10 years old. Some of you could probably relate to this story. There I am, you know, love your sins and find your, or lose your sins and find your Savior. Not love your sins. Lose your sins and find your Savior. So some people may love their sins. I don't know. But I was probably about 10, 11 years old. And I was at a camp meeting service, you know, growing up in the Nazarene tradition. You go to those. And, and I'll never forget, um, and, and, and I say 10, but I probably had this experience every summer in my life. Growing up, sitting there, listening to some fiery preacher. And, you know, I always I, I marveled at this. It didn't matter if they were preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the woman at the well. It didn't matter if they were preaching on Joshua taking Jericho. The sermons always ended something like this. Now, tonight, some of you will need to make a decision about where you want to spend eternity. Now, the last place that I was at a week ago, there were three young people sitting in the back. And I could see the Holy Spirit working all over them. I could see it on their faces. God was working on them. And and God was speaking to them. And they knew they made a decision for Christ. But you know what they did? They left that night with no decision. And I got word, they got hit by a bus. (laughs) And they slipped off into eternity 
Well, there I was, 10 years old or so. Well, I don't want to get hit by a bus. I don't want to slip off into eternity. And I remember the, the preachers always said something like this. You need to make a decision tonight. Is it going to be heaven with God or is it going to be eternal damnation, torment, hell? Well, there I was at 10 years old. I was like, that's my options. I'm going to take heaven. And so I, I, I would run to the altar. I would cry. And I remember this one time I had a preacher literally got in my face and said, what's the decision tonight? And I thought, now that I think back, he should have asked me about what my decision was. Am I going to follow Jesus? But his real question was, and the question he asked me is, where do you want to spend eternity, son? Heaven or hell? I can remember at that young age that there were a lot of, you know, decisions to, to be made about, you know, what, what, uh, what, what I was going to do with my life. But the one thing I realized was, is that no matter what happened, because I'd made a decision, I was going to go to heaven. But I wondered what that would be like. This is what I thought it was going to look like. (laughs) You know, when I thought about it, it was like, how how do you want to spend forever? Well, the options are eternal torment or this. If those are my only options, I, I guess I'll take this. But that looks kind of boring. Especially once I'm not very musically inclined, I could sound really bad up there with all the, you know, maybe I'll get to sit beside Danita and Ben when we're playing our harps and I'll just pretend and it'll sound like I'm doing good. But those were the kind of the options that we had. And, and the truth is, is that, is that there are people wondering, is there more to it than this? And there has been in our world for many centuries, um, okay, I'll get that picture off of there. I know it's disturbing. Uh, (laughs) There have been a lot of questions about the afterlife. N.T. Wright probably puts it best, so instead of me trying to come up with a statement, I just thought I would use his. Beliefs about death and what lies beyond come in all shapes and sorts and sizes. Even a quick glance of the classic view of the major religious traditions gives us the lie to the old gives the lie to the old idea that all religions are basically the same. There is a world of difference between the Muslim who believes that a Palestinian boy killed by an Israeli soldier goes straight to heaven and the Hindu for whom the rigorous outworking of karma means that one must return in a different body to pursue the next stage of one's destiny. There is a world of difference between the Orthodox Jew that believes that the righteous will be raised to a new individual bodily life in the resurrection and the Buddhist who hopes after death to disappear like a drop in the ocean, losing one's own identity in the great nameless and formless beyond. And there are major, and there are, of course, major variations between all these different branches of school of thought. The world is asking what happens next. So what has been the historical Christian view of the afterlife? What do we as Christians profess and talk about when we talk about life after this life? The, the, the real um, reality is, is that we've been confessing as a church for this for many, many centuries. Last week, Pastor Chris mentioned that it was around 397 or so A.D. that the church actually canonized Scripture and said, this is the authoritative word. But even for centuries before that, the church was creating creeds, trying to explain this is what we believe. 
And one of the creeds that has become kind of the main creed in Christendom today is the Apostles' Creed. And at the very end, it says, we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Well, that explains a whole lot, but it leaves a whole lot of questions. What do we mean whenever we say we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting? Well, the early church, and this is something that, that you need to, to, to kind of understand. When we get into the New Testament, the early church was not very concerned about what happens to somebody who dies and is still waiting for Jesus to return. And there's a reason for that. Over in the Gospels, Jesus clearly makes a statement. He repeats it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says, very truly I tell you, this generation will not pass before they see the kingdom. And so there was this belief in the early church that, yeah, maybe in about 15, 20 minutes, Jesus will be back and the kingdom will be established. And so their mind was not necessarily, on. they weren't thinking that there was going to be you know, thousands of years that were going to pass. So they focused their attention on the coming of the new heaven and the new earth. You see this in the book of Revelation chapter 21. When John is telling the vision of what he saw and things to come, he saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Even the very, some of the very last words of the New Testament are words talking about the coming of God's kingdom. The, the apostles uh, uh, rooted their teaching in the afterlife. And N.T. Wright, um, who I resourced a lot for, for this discussion today, talked a lot about, he even uses the phrase, is that what they really talked about was the life after um, the afterlife. This idea of that we live this life, this life comes to an end, and there is life on the other side. And that was really how the early church really thought about all of this, is that, yes, that, 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 that there is a death, but because we are in Christ, life continues. Life goes on. And it's important to, I think, realize that, that what we may seem as silence about what happens in this eye in time between the times was not the major emphasis of the early church because they wanted us to focus our attention on the kingdom that was coming whenever Christ returns. Um, the apostles, however, um, they, the, the focus was to proclaim, um, I, I like this statement because I wrote it, the, fo- the focus was a proclaim, to proclaim that the certain hope that, this, um, that the salvation of God in Christ ha- has started will be completed in all of creation. They expanded this, and, and, and I hope I'm not getting too far down in the weeds for you, but it's really important to understand is that the early church did not, they were not highly concerned like sometimes we are in the Western world about what's going to happen to me. And they had it very individual focused. Their, their picture, their, the, the, the view that they had was Christ's resurrection was a foretaste of what was going to happen for all of creation. That it wasn't just going to be me as Jeff being resurrected and that was going to be great. But they also saw earth being renewed. Um, If they lived today, they would have probably said things like, 
all pollution would be gone. We would, we would have very, um, very uh, good relationships with other people. We wouldn't be offending other people. We wouldn't be this oppression that goes on where people are being trampled over because of various reasons would no longer exist. They saw that even the earth itself would get back into balance like it was at the first of creation. And so for them, the early church's focus was highly on this idea that when Christ returns, everything that has been made wrong will be made right. And they believed that it was going to happen within their lifetime. The Apostle Paul, I threw up Romans 8 there for you. He talks about this in his words in Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing to the, for the revealing of the children of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but of the will of the one who subjected it. You can read on there, but it's Paul saying that that the brokenness that we read in Genesis chapter 3 has not only had an effect on us as human beings, but it has a damaging effect on all of creation. And so they understood that, that Christ's return was not going to be just my salvation. It was going to be the literal redemption of the whole world. Every blade of grass, every mountaintop, every lake, every stream, every person, every animal was going to be redeemed in this process. So with the emphasis on the bodily or material resurrection, we understood that all matter participates, all material all flesh, all blood, all actual hard objects, they are going to be redeemed. And so with this focus, there is a sense in which they understood this. What God started in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 that we read of the creation of the whole world, that was the way it was supposed to be. Human sin, human brokenness, human disobedience, human beings walking away from God has left a brokenness in this world and that their anticipation of the coming of Christ was all about Christ returning and renewing and restoring and making the world whole again. Now, this is really, I think, important because and it'll, I think it'll make more sense here in just a moment, but their emphasis, and I don't want to overemphasize this, but I feel like I need to, it was on bodily resurrection, material things were going to be redeemed. It wasn't just going to be a a better place somewhere else. It really was this world, this reality was going to be made new, is going to be made new. And so for them, they understood the whole story. God created a beautiful place. Sin, evil, and destruction messed it up. And God's plan is to bring it all back to the way it was. He's, he's like a great re- restorer. He, he's take, if you can imagine an old piece of furniture, it's all banged and beat up and dented and kinked. It's, he's taking and he's cleaning and he's working through his church, through his people, to make it look new again, to renew it. All of this is understood in the basis of what we call our salvation understanding. Salvation is to be understood that it encompasses all times in, in space. So with the concern, um, with, the, with the, the early church's concern about a certain hope that God is going to renew things, the focus began and, and was placed on this renewal. And so 
salvation, a word we often use for individual work, is really a word that should be used for all of creation. Uh, The two most basic Christian confessions are Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Redeemer of all things. Uh, Christian faith believes that not only is humanity saved, but all of creation is saved. I I guess I need to kind of do a little segue here. You know what really, can I soapbox a second? You know what really drives me nuts? Christians who don't think it's important to take care of planet Earth. It really bothers me. God created this beautiful planet of ours. And if there's any group of people that should be recycling, it should be Christians. If there's any group of people who are paying attention to things like pollution and and things like that, it should be Christians. God created this beautiful place. And part of his kingdom work is the renewal of all creation. The, the other uh, thing to keep in mind is that the, uh, the early church understood that the bodily resurrection of Christ is the de- destiny of all Christ's followers. So I, I don't know how to say it any clearer. You will be back. Okay, that was Jesus long before Schwarzenegger. Okay, you will be back. You will come back. Body will come back. And what we see in Christ's resurrection is what is awaiting us as well. And the church believed and taught that, and they focused a lot of attention on that. So here's the question. If the church spent all this time, and Jeff spent all this time, talking about what the church spent all of its time, focusing on what was to come in the arrival of the kingdom, when did the shift happen? When did the attention on the coming of the kingdom shift to what happens when I die? Well, the reality is, is that um, I can't illustrate it any better than a story that I saw in an interview with N.T. Wright. He tells that he was in a, um, in a Scotland church, an old church, and he was walking through the graveyard. And he began to notice something, and so he started investigating about what was going on in, in these different tombstones. And this is what he noticed. He noticed that, that people who had died in the 17th century and back had statements on their tombstones similar to, I will rise again. Uh, that, that, you know, kind of like that, what I just said, the I'll be back statement, is that it was this idea that they were coming back to life at another time. He noticed that somewhere around the 19th century that all of a sudden the phrases on the tombstones changed. And on those tombstones, what he found was words like, I went home, meet me there, I'll meet you there. That there was a shift somewhere in that time period away from this emphasis on resurrection and the coming of the kingdom to this, I went somewhere else, come meet me there. What we have, what what, uh, a little investigation takes you back to is that somewhere in the time of the Enlightenment age, there was, a, there was a shift that went on about the, where the focus started to turn away from the, the, the coming kingdom of God into the question of what happens to me when I die? Where am I going? And it evolved into this understanding of, of some kind of what I'll call escapism. Now, the Enlightenment period, and I know this is where the nerdy part and all this stuff comes in, 
But during the Enlightenment period was when the issue of proving rationalism came into, to, um, into play. They, they wanted to prove truth. They wanted to prove how, how things were. And what they focused their attention on was on what was repeatable. Things that happen once, do they happen again? Do they happen again? What can we see? What can we learn from those experiences? That's kind of where this science sort of, now I'm not against science, okay, so be careful here. But this is where science was kind of really birthed was during this time. This idea of analyzing and studying and and what was going on. But there was a shift that took place in Western philosophy that moved the Christians away from this idea of waiting for the, the return of Christ into what we call of an escapism that says we must go some other place when we die. The, the, the struggle was is that they couldn't repeat resurrection. It just wasn't happening everywhere. And so it led a lot of, of those, those enlightenment thinkers to begin to think along and in terms of, well, if, if people aren't coming back to life yet, then what's happening? And many in the church began to to buy into this, what they call Western dualism, this idea of somehow there is a body and a soul, and at death they separate, and the body decays in the ground, and the soul goes to some other happy place where we become angels and we play harps, and it's a wonderful, blissful existence. The reality is, is that Western philosophy taught us that uh, body and spirit are separate from each other. And so it began to become very easy for church people to begin to think, well, then if that's the case, then maybe we misunderstood this and maybe it's we leave here and go somewhere else. Well, this wasn't actually a very new thought. This actually comes up in the New Testament. There's a group you may have heard of called the Gnostics. They called themselves the knowledge people. And what they believed is that is that if a person encountered Christ, that what would happen is, is that as they walked with Christ, what would be imparted to them is a secret knowledge. And this secret knowledge would then somehow transform them in a way that they could escape the, the corruptible body and they could move into a spirit life and live happily ever after in some blissful existence. And the body would just go away. Now, what we know is, is that the early church had a lot of problems. In John's uh, first epistle, you read um, that these words, and, and, and I hope that maybe hearing this will help you see a little bit differently about how each of these letters is addressing a problem. He writes in his very first verse, we declare to you what, we have, what was from the beginning, what we have heard with our ears, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and declared to you that the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. That's, that's John saying to some pre-Gnostic people is that what Jesus has done is not salvation for this essence in us, just a soul escape kind of thing, but it is really the salvation of the whole person body, soul, spirit, whatever you, however you want to discuss that. And, and so, so for these early Christians, they were paying a lot of attention to this issue 
of the coming kingdom, but already these ideas were starting to float around. So, here's what I want to say. Heaven, as this place that I'm going to talk about in a second, is important, but it's not the end of the world. I'll tell you, that's not my statement. I stole that from N.T. Wright. It's really good, though, because there's a lot of emphasis on heaven, Where do I go when I die? What's it going to be like? What's it going to look like? It's hard to talk about in Scripture because it wasn't a major emphasis for the early Christians because they didn't think they were going to be here that long. But heaven is a reality, and it is mentioned in Scripture. Um, The reality for us as followers of Christ is to realize that heaven is a concept that is there and is something for us to think about. It it's centered around questions like what happened to what happens to me when I die if Jesus hasn't returned what happened to my loved ones that died and they're still waiting for Jesus to return this is again not a new question if you look at first Thessalonians chapter 4 Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica and they're asking that question what happens to the dead in Christ and he has that famous statement the dead in Christ will rise first and those of us who are alive will remain will be caught up with them and so we'll be um, with the Lord forever so this is not a a new problem in the church it has been a question that's been around now here's the sad thing there are only three major texts in the whole New Testament that talk about what happens in the time between death and the coming of the kingdom. One text is John 14, Jesus in the table discourse. He's in there talking to his disciples about what is to come. He's talking, they're having the Last Supper. And he says to them this phrase, in my father's house are many rooms. Now, I know I've heard, I know you've heard mansions, and and and, and there's a really great well, I don't know how great it is, but there was a song um, called, you know, I have a mansion over on the hilltop. You know, I, I, I confess I sang it once. Um, <clears throat> that word in the Greek is not even mansions. And rooms is kind of a, a really broad translation. It, it can really, it literally means hotel room. It's a temporary stop. And he's saying to them, no matter what happens in the days to come, fear not. My father has a place for you to go where you'll be taken care of. Temporary may it be, because we're waiting for the kingdom. And and, and then there's this other passage over in Paul where he's talking about, he's kind of having this back and forth discussion where he's he's talking about this, like, should I live or should I die? And he makes makes this statement, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He has a hope that whatever happens when he dies, if, if Christ hasn't returned, his hope is, well, God will take care of me and I will be with him. And, and, and that's, that's it. There's one other passage, and it's the one I want us to look at here real quick. It's the passage that we find of Jesus on the cross. He's hanging there. Two others also, it says, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they had come to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals. One on his right, one on his left. And one of the criminals who were hanging uh, kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and save us. 
But the other rebuked, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly, for we were... um, For we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then here's the important piece for our discussion. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replies, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. The thief was talking about the arrival of the kingdom, that that picture uh, that John illustrates in Revelation 21, but Jesus says to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. The Greek word, uh, paradosius. It it originally comes from, uh, this is kind of the Perry County in me, I thought this was pretty cool. It's from the Persian, which means it's a grand enclosure, a hunting ground. It's got deer stands all over it. It's shady. It's well watered. Um, and, and you go in there and, and it's enclosed so they, the, the animals can't get out, which is probably good for a shot like me. But anyway, and, and it's, it's, it's this garden that, that they understood in Persia, which was a paradise for those warriors to go in and practice their skills and hunt. Well, by the time we get to Jesus, The word has evolved and it's found its way into their culture. And during Jesus' time, there was an understanding that that if I was a Jewish person and I died, I went to a place called Sheol, which was basically where dead people went waiting for the resurrection. And in Jesus' time, they took this word paradosius and they, they evolved it into an understanding that it was a place where the pious and righteous people would abide as they waited for the coming of the bodily resurrection that was coming at the end of time. So what Jesus is saying, at least from that Greek word study, is that Jesus is telling this thief, I will take you when we're dead, I will take you to a place where you will be kept until my kingdom comes. That's, to me, a very interesting and important thing when we ask this question, where do I go? The reality is, is that heaven is not so much a physical place, but it's the realization that God's presence is there and it's being experienced. That heaven is a place where when we pass from this life, we go to a place where God's presence fully encompasses us, where we rest in await for the coming of the kingdom. To say that a loved one is heaven is to really say, is that they are safely in the presence of Christ. What that looks like, we don't know. I haven't been there. Many people haven't that have come back to tell us. I actually don't know anybody that has. But the reality is for us is that what we can have confidence in is that when we, if our time in life comes before Christ's return, the game plan is God will take us into his presence and hold us as we wait for the consummation of his kingdom. As I mentioned, there are only three major texts. So paradise is the blissful existence where God's people rest prior to the resurrection. So what's all this mean? Remember I talked about at the beginning that their understanding of afterlife was rooted in salvation? What this means for us as followers of Jesus is this. 
is that eternity has already begun for us. And that we may have to go through the phases of physical life here on earth, with the birth, the, the living, the dying. But the reality is, is that Jesus Christ is our risen certain hope that at the end of this life, that there was, awaits for us a full bodily entrance into his kingdom. And that in the meantime, if we find ourselves waiting, we are waiting in the presence of Christ. I thought about this, that the, the reality is for all of us is that at some level, followers of Jesus are experiencing heaven right now because we are walking in his presence. He is with us now. And so we are going through the throes of life. But the truth of the matter is, is that what we anticipate is the coming of a new life, a new kingdom, and a new hope. So this took me back to a time when I first heard all about this stuff. And I had a great opportunity uh, to sit under a, a great uh, professor by the name of Bill Greathouse or William Greathouse. He was teaching on this kind of thing, and he got to this part. I'll never forget him saying, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, except we know that Christ is coming and he'll set up his kingdom. And as he was explaining all of that, he got to a place where, where he started to tear up. And he said, if, we, if all of this that we believe is just belief, if it's just head stuff, it means nothing. And he said, it really needs to become a song in our heart. It needs to be something that we confess. And I'll never forget it. I was sitting there, a young, young college student, a master's level student, and he was talking about all these things, and he just stopped, and he paused, and he sat there in his chair. And then the six-foot-six man, 80-some years old, stands up with a tear in his eye, and he begins to do this. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. That old song of the church expresses this, the hope of every Christian, is that as it was in the beginning, it is now and ever shall be. It is a world that we live in without end. Because on this day, Christ the King, who has risen and is coming again, we celebrate. My hope for the future is placed in one person, and that is Jesus. Let's prepare our hearts for the table.